Welcome to Famous Lost Words. This is the show where we find the most amazing interviews in the archives. Well, Tom Jokic does that. But <laughs> anyway, and we get to play the best parts for you. And that's Christopher Ward. He's the original Much Music VJ and my co-host, and I'm Tom Jokic. Christopher. You're going to ask me a question. I'm going to ask you a question. Right, go ahead. That's how we're doing it this season. Okay. What song was ruined for you when it was used in a commercial or another kind of extraneous use? Well, I hated hearing Revolution in a Nike commercial. Right. That was just like losing my virginity, you know? It was just, <laughs> but not, not without the fun, you know? Uh, it, it was just, yeah. That was, that was painful. That. that was painful. But it didn't ruin the song for me, so that doesn't really right. accurately answer your question. Oh, you know what? <laughs> You're going to like this. What? Um, Build Me Up Buttercup by The Foundations. Yeah. And they use the original version in a Geico commercial. Oh, no. And it, it starts off innocently enough. There's a young woman who's riding a motorcycle in a beautiful sort of mountainous setting. But then it cuts to, I guess, like the office where the Geico people are or whatever. And then she cues the other people in the office to sing a little bit of the song. That's one of those things that should really be sort of disallowed by international law. <laughs> And unfortunately is not. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I love that song, by the way. That is a fun song at a party. I bet. Yeah, it really is. Okay, for me, it's it's not a song that was ever one of my favorites, but it was completely ruined by a Heinz ketchup commercial, and that's Anticipation by Carly Simon. Oh, right. I cannot hear that song now because I, I listen to Carly Simon's greatest hits. I'm a huge fan. Recently read a book about her and love her you know, from beginning to even current day. But Carly, they do the song, Anticipation, and then um, and then the line, it, it's, uh, it's making me wait, and then the announcer comes on and goes, it's slow good. So every time I hear Anticipation, that stupid announcer's oh. voice comes in, and I'm going, ah, it's ketchup, and it ruined the song. Understandably, <laughs> because... You know, it's funny, I, I don't have the same experience as you do, but it's kind of one of those famous examples where they took a really well-known song yeah. and ruined it. And of course, many songs started off as commercials and then became hits afterwards. We, we've Only Just Begun by the Carpenters was, I think, a like for a bank or something like that. And then, of course, I'd Like to Buy the World a Coke turned into I'd Like to Teach the World to Sing. Oh, by the Seekers, by yeah. By the Seekers, yeah. Okay, Christopher, let's get down to business. This week, one of the biggest rock bands of the 80s, plus a guy who had one of the greatest award show performances ever, and then a band that defined the early new wave movement. And after I planned out the lineup for this show, I realized they're all Canadian. So we start with Loverboy from 1986 at the peak of their game and their fame. And it's such a fun interview with lead singer Mike Reno. And I have a couple of brand new interviews to share with you. Colin James talks about his latest album and also the bizarre story of how he got his first big break. And something happens during our Zoom interview that was very, very strange and it stopped both of us cold and then we both cracked up. So have a listen for that. And I had the privilege of speaking to Martha and the Muffins. That's Martha Johnson and Mark Gain. They talk about their new collection of songs and we discuss the success of Echo Beach. Plus, Martha talks about how her battle with Parkinson's has ended her ability to play live, but it hasn't stopped her from making new music. And finally, Christopher and I go at it once again with TJ versus the VJ as we answer the question, 
How can two guys who get along so well be so brutal to each other? Stick around and find out. First, let's get started with Loverboy. From 1980, Turn Me Loose by Loverboy. Mike Reno is a great conversationalist. You know you'll have some laughs, you'll get some stories, and Mike always seems to be enjoying himself. There's no sort of artist ennui for this guy, right? This interview takes place in 1986. The band has just finished touring to support the Love and Every Minute of It album, which went double platinum on the back of the Mutt Lang title track. They're looking forward to a break but a very short one before heading back into the studio. Here, yeah. Mike talks about doing 173 shows. So what's it like touring with Van Halen? Is it the sort of situation wherein they've got their area backstage, you've got your area backstage, or is there, is there some mingling? Are you making some friendships here? We've been friends for a while. Have you? Yeah. They come to... Uh, actually, Sammy and I did a song together, so... Oh, really? Remember, remember the Heroes? off Sammy's, uh, let's say, two albums ago. Okay, yeah. We did a duet, and uh, that's when we first met. And uh, I was happy to hear that he got the job. Mm -hmm. Because you were going to audition if he didn't get it, right? (laughs) (laughs) You weren't supposed to tell everybody. Sorry, (laughs) sorry. Paul, that's not true, Paul. (laughs) Okay. Paul Dean will be biting his fingernails. (laughs) So the last time we talked, you and I was over the phone, and you were in Pittsburgh. It was early on in the tour, supporting the new album. The album had just come out, in fact, I'm pretty sure. Well, it had been out for a little bit. Love and Every Minute of It had already been a hit, and the ballad was uh, was just coming out at that time. Right. And then you sounded all fresh. You'd, you'd had like a two-year break, from the road anyway, something like that, and you were all fresh and everything. And What are you trying to tell me? Well, how is it now? Look uh, at me. Well, you'd still look good. I look fresh. Yeah. I'm yeah. happening, I'm happy, yeah. I'm smiling. Yeah. The show, it's a sunny day, everything's great. Yeah, has it been a rigorous road, though? We've done... Between uh, then and now? Oh, man, we've done 173 shows since then. Oh, jeez. And you still got your sanity. And a lot more. Sanity mm-hmm. and calluses and yeah. sore backs. But we have, uh, we've worked all throughout the United States. We've been doing four shows on, one off. Which tallies up to six a week. So you do you do four days of shows in a row, and then you get a day off, right? Which is usually a travel day. Always a yeah, travel day. Always yeah. a travel day. That means you've got the, your longest distance between gigs to go on that day. It's not like you get to sit hey, around the hotel or anything, right? You've 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 I know seen this these thing. things. Yes, yeah. I know how these things work. That's oh. the only reason you get a day off because it's too far to travel to do the next shows. They That's have right. to take a <laughs> they, day off. They're forced to. Yeah. This is management. Like yeah. you, you said, it keep them in the tour bus, right? That's right. So, is, is that bothering you at all, though, or would you just as soon be doing it that way and then take an extended break like you did the last time? Well, when I signed in here, there was a guest book at the front desk. Mm-hmm. I signed my name, Mike Reno, address, tour bus. Because <laughs> <laughs> really? really, basically, that is my address. No fixed address, yeah. But that's all I really know now. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's nice to come off the road, but I get the heebie-jeebies after I'm off the road because mm-hmm. it's like, this isn't fair. I should be singing and dancing and okay. doing things. I guess the, the main thing is, and you know, you say, well, that's management, that's the way they work, is, but as long as you've got hits coming off of your albums, and now the latest is from the Top Gun soundtrack, right. Heaven in Your Eyes, as long as the hits are on the radio, it, it makes sense for you guys to be there in front right. of people. So. And the crowds have been going really strong for it. Um, mm-hmm. They're really coming out in full force. I was reading some articles in uh, some of the magazines, Rolling Stone and whatnot, saying that the attendance was down 
for a lot of rock groups. It's, been, it's, it's been kind of a weird summer, yeah. It's funny they mention all these bands mm-hmm. that the attendance is down. And I was a bit hurt at first, but then they didn't mention us. And the reason they didn't is because our attendance really hasn't been that down. Mm-hmm. We've had big crowds all throughout the United States. And uh, it's been pretty good. Mm-hmm. I mean, da- damn near full houses every night. And where we have just been, we did Florida and Puerto Rico and uh, all throughout Texas and... Uh, North Carolinas and mm-hmm. South Carolinas and Let's Tennessee. not forget uh, playing Vancouver, too. Vancouver. First we, time in your hometown in how long? Four years. Yeah. We that did. was something. And that was at Expo, right? Three shows. Woof. A beautiful Expo site. Right. And it was three sold-out shows, and it was a really good time. Working for the weekend, 1981, Loverboy, and I know, Christopher, that's one of your favorite songs. It is. I love that song. <laughs> I think I told you that um, Mike uh, described Paul Paul Dean as being a Frankenstein songwriter. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I love yeah. that. And like you say, Mike is so funny, and a lot of Canadian rock stars are just so likable, and they sound grateful for their luck. You know, I think of... Um, yeah of Arnold Lanny in uh, Frozen Ghost, um, looking back at the Sheriff Times. I think of your friend Mark Jordan, Gino Vanelli. when I talked to him. Uh, you and I talked to uh, Alan Frew from Glass Tiger, and you can tell there's a profound sense of feeling so lucky for everything that's happened to them. Tom, here Mike talks about playing for the Prince and Princess of Wales. Now that was weird. You got to, and I saw you in the lineup. The picture was everywhere in the papers. You guys meeting them, yeah. It's funny that some of the things they say to you, you'd never repeat them, but they really are a very human couple. Mm-hmm. Very, very humorous, too. Oh, yeah. And uh, when you really think about it, she's like 25 or something, 24. Sure, oh, yeah. You know, she, she, she likes to She likes to rock yeah. and roll. Oh, yeah. She asked, asked for backstage passes when we played Wembley. I thought that was cool. I said, well, you get rid of Chuck. and we'll, we'll <laughs> <laughs> Chuck, oh, yeah, you're on a first-name basis now, eh? Hey, Chuck, how's it going, buddy? All right. <laughs> That's great. Um, well, actually, from what I understand, uh, she's the one who's really been the motivator in all his Prince's Trust concerts, which have really taken off. It's, it's been since they've been together that those things have really been happening. It's nice to see a, somebody's in that uh, position. Mm-hmm. Royalty always sounds so serious. Mm-hmm. It's nice to see some people in there that are doing a job mm-hmm. and they're putting a little levity to it. You know, it's, so it's, they say they say some pretty candid things to you when they, when you meet them, oh, right? when yeah, you're in I the mean, reception it's, line. There. It's like it's all everybody's in serious tuxedos and oh, he's yeah. got his hand shaking gloves and he'll lean forward in his British accent and go. Rather be quaffing down a pint, wouldn't you say, old boy? <laughs> you know, as opposed to saying, you know, isn't this a lovely Marvelous city? Show. You know, yeah, right. Or whatever. Show. He goes, yeah. you know, let's have a beer. Basically, it was yeah. what, you know, that's the attitude. That's great. So it's, it lightens everybody up. Are there going to be any more singles off of the latest album then? I, no, no. aren't. That's going to be it. So are you going to take a break eventually now and start working on another LP? Or uh, Last show of this Loverboy 86 tour, September the 8th. Mm-hmm. Well, you're coming up pretty quick then, yeah. In California. Right. And we're going home, probably take a week, just to uh, find out how many pairs of socks we lost. Right. So no long break this time. You're just going to go right back at it no, again. Yeah. We only yeah. took that long break because we hadn't had a break in four and a half years. Right. And uh, yeah. it was a good break. Mm-hmm. We needed it, and now we're back. Yeah. 
Back okay. in the studio, back on the road. Back in the saddle, all right. That was great. Lover boy on Famous Lost Words. If you're loving the show so far, don't forget to get caught up on all of our past episodes, including interviews with Mick Jagger, Janet Jackson, Boy George, Carly Simon, Tina Turner, Ozzy Osbourne, Rush, Stevie Nicks, Joni Mitchell, Bruno Mars, David Bowie, and so many others. All you have to do is follow Famous Lost Words on the iHeartRadio app or any other major podcast platform. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Tom Jokic. Without Christopher Ward, but someone that Christopher has worked with and someone who I am a big fan of has joined us on this show. Welcome, Colin James. Hello. How are you? <laughs> I'm excellent. Okay, Colin. So first of all, let's talk about the new album. It's called Open Road. It's available now. It's your 20th album. It's a great album. I listened to the whole thing today. Uh, my favorite cuts are As the Crow Flies, That's Why I'm Crying, and Down on the Bottom. Let's have a quick listen to that. Here's Down on the Bottom. That's Colin James and Down on the Bottom from his brand new album, Open Road, available now, and Colin is joining us right now. So was this new album, Colin, was it recorded this year, or is it one of those things that was ready like a year ago and got set back? Well, we did the record in three sessions, and we were we were heading down the west coast of uh, the states doing a trio show and we were playing yoshis in san francisco when the pandemic hit oh so we packed up everything hightailed it back to vancouver and at that point we had gone in and done maybe three songs i think so it was over a couple of years and because my producer lives in london england it was you know d- doing it on zoom but um, it's always so great to get a release out because, you know, sitting on something for too long, you get to the point where you can't listen to it. Right. That was my next question. Yeah. Yeah. You, you're done. <laughs> and you get a bit of a reprieve when it comes out because finally it's just like, okay, now it's out. I bet. You know, one of my favorite memories of you, other than the chance that you and I got to chat with each other about 1997, but one of my favorites, and I think... Correct me if I'm wrong. I think it was the 1989 Junos, and I think you did Voodoo Thing. Is that cor- Would that be about right? I think that's about right. We opened up the whole night. Yeah, and it was one of those things where, you know, your album had been out for just a little while, and you smoked it. It's actually, in my opinion, one of the most memorable Juno performances. And it was just one of those things where you lit it up, and everybody was going, holy blank, who is that and what's going on? Because it was wild and it was energetic. And, and you know, there's still that same guy is on this new album. What do you remember about that early time, about those early days? I remember that um, Anne Murray was right sitting right in front of me. That kind of freaked me out because, you know, that was pretty new to me being even being to Toronto. I don't yeah. think I got there for the first time until I was. 18 or 19 or something. So, right. and by this point, I guess I'm 20. I forget how old I was. Yeah. But anyway, she was in the front row. But here's what I remember. That's back when we do it in a soft seater, which I have to say I prefer. You know, it's just so crazy now. It's such a spectacle now. Right. But anyway, uh, this uh, curtain was rising and my, my, my guitar wasn't working. 
and the curtain was coming up and I just kicked my board playing and uh, looking at Anne Murray as I did. <laughs> the song went without a, without a flaw, but I've had a couple moments like that where it could have been as bad as it was good. So. So you came out of the gate pretty hard, and your first album was the fastest selling in Canadian history. You got a lot of attention very quickly, and you found yourself touring with some of your, some of your heroes. How do you look back at that time? Was it like too much, or was it just great? There was sometimes it was too much. I remember that when I, uh, I remember particularly the Keith Richards opening slot when I got that. I was in Kamloops, <laughs> British Columbia, when I heard that we were opening up, and I remember being super nervous. Those memories are, are amazing now, and uh, I wish I could have slowed time down and really... Uh, I remember the ZZ Top one because we got to play the Forum in Montreal, and of course uh, in Toronto we played... Uh, Maple Leaf Gardens? The Gardens. Oh my God. I was always told that if people in ZZ's crowd didn't like you, they're going to throw things at you. I heard that from two other bands, that the things are going to fly at the stage. So I was quite nervous. But by the time we finished the Vancouver show, I, I thought we were the right kind of music for the gig, and it was, it was fine. So many great experiences like that. The premise of this show, for the most part, we play old clips from our archives. And oh, no. We... Uh-oh. <laughs> Do you have one of me? Oh, gee, I don't know. I, I can't imagine. You're 21 years old in this. God help us. Uh, you're talking about how you got into the blues, okay? I didn't, in the interview, I didn't say I was the king of the world or anything today. No, have a listen. When did you decide that, that you'd move toward blues? Uh, to tell you the truth, when I saw James Cotton in, uh, when I was about 17 in, in Winnipeg, mm-hmm. and uh, he blew me away. I'd never seen anyone, uh, anyone play like that before. I'd heard it on record, but I'd never seen a live blues player like Cotton come out and, and kick like he did. There was 22,000 people there, and he went nuts. And I uh, met my first girl that night, too. So it was a package deal. <laughs> so it was a big night for you. It changed your big, life. Big, big night, man. You know, it was great. <laughs> <laughs> Does that, is that creating an embarrassing moment for you, Colin? It's always embarrassing to hear myself talk. So what do you, what do you think of what you said and, and reflect also on that show with James Cotton? Well, I, it was, it's absolutely true. Uh, every, you know, that, that night... Um, they had a lot of folk, you know, like, like the folk, Winnipeg Folk Festival was this amazing place where you could see Pete Seeger start the show, but by nighttime, you'd have a John Lee Hooker or a, or a James Cotton. And he just came on and just killed it. It was just a magic night. There are so many stories of an artist who kind of got their big break when another artist didn't show up. One of your early breaks was when you opened for Stevie Ray Vaughan in your hometown of Regina. Tell that story. It, it's simple enough. You know, I just heard him for the first time about a month earlier. I thought I was hearing Albert King when I first heard him I, on the David Bowie song, like everyone else. I hear his record. I start listening to it and realize how much I love it. And uh, like maybe a month later, I'm on stage with them. So, <laughs> and I had moved to Vancouver at this point. I had used to be from Regina, Saskatchewan, where I'd opened up for George Thorogood when I was 16, I opened up for John Lee Herco when I was 16. So I had a name for opening up for some blues acts when they come through town. Uh, but I'd left town and I'd been gone for about a year and a half, maybe more. And I just came back. <laughs> Don't start with me. Oh, to say goodbye. Damn it. Oh. When you lob one in there like that, I'm going to swing. Okay. <laughs> oh, it's nasty. I know. Anyway, so... <laughs> I went back to uh, Saskatchewan and um, 
I really, actually, I was a little hurt. My feelings were hurt because I was playing with a band in Vancouver. They had the record company from San Francisco coming up, coming up to hear the band. And the leader didn't think I was ready. And he was flying in another guy for the gig. And he said, are you cool with that? I'm sorry, but I just have to. And I went, all right, that's all right. I'm a, I'm a kid. I'm a younger guy. I get it. So I, I just went home to take a breather. I was living out here. I was pretty broke. I thought I'd go home and see mom, you know, and that was it. And I got the second day I was home, a phone, the phone rang and she said, someone. That is wild. <laughs> okay. Now, if you're just listening, I didn't add that sound effect. That literally happened when he said that. That is fantastic. Okay, then. That was crazy. The phone rang. Like I say, <laughs> my God. She said, some guy phoned for you. And he says, uh, he said, he, you know him. So I phoned. I said, what's up? He says, can you be in Saskatoon by tomorrow at four? And I said, why? He says, um, Steve Ray Vaughan has just fired his opening act last night in Edmonton. And he, uh, we, we, you're all we could think of. <laughs> <laughs> you know so I get there around two or three and this truck pulls up with a bunch of drums in the back these two jazz guys they're, they're maybe 15-20 years older than I we were started rehearsing and Stevie came busting in the room and he says is it true and I said is what true he says is it true that you guys just met each other <laughs> and I says yes it is true but we'll just get five or six songs together that'll be fine you know I was trying to and he just got a kick out of it. That started a crazy couple of days where I opened up from twice in a row and he'd get me out the other night and it happened in my hometown. And it really started, and at the time he asked me to come up, he asked if I was cool to come down in Buffalo opening some more shows, but I didn't have a band, so I couldn't. I had to say no. So that's the story. That's and great. the story continues because when he came the next year, he, he asked me for the Edmonton and Calgary shows. That's great. Well, Colin, thank you so much. I really do appreciate kind of reconnecting with you in terms of being able to talk to you. Your music is great, but you also have a great spirit. You're easy to talk to. I really appreciate that. Thank you. Thanks once again for being on Famous Lost Words. I'll definitely say hi to Christopher for you. All the best with this new album. It's called Open Road. It's available now. And the new single is down on the bottom. Take care. Thanks a lot. All right. All the best. Thank you, man. That's Tom in conversation with Colin James. Up next, a great chat with a band whose very first single was a worldwide hit. And how do you follow that up? That's next on Famous Lost Words. Welcome back to Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with Tom Jokic. And if you're enjoying today's show, don't forget to subscribe on the iHeartRadio app to get caught up with the dozens and dozens of interviews from the archives. From the birds to the eagles, from BTO to NXS, from Joni to Janet. We got all the Georges, Harrison and Michael, and so many Stevies like Wonder and Nicks. But right now, we have a new interview with a band that hit it big with their very first single. That's Martha and the Muffins and Echo Beach from 1980. A few days ago, Tom spoke with Martha Johnson and Mark Gain about the latest release from the Muffins. Welcome to the show, Martha and Mark. Hi, Tom. Nice to be here. So, guys, the new collection is called Marthology In and Outtakes, includes 12 rare singles, B-sides, and unreleased tracks, including a 30th anniversary recording of Echo Beach. And the whole collection is out now. The first single 
is called Do You Ever Wonder? So let's have a quick listen to that. That's Martha and the Muffins, Do You Ever Wonder? And it's got the perfect Martha and the Muffins sound, very tuneful, great lyrics. Tell us a little bit about that song. Well, Connie, we, we seem to have a, a theme to our, our writing and a style without really being conscious of it. I, I, whenever I hear us on the radio or randomly in, in, the, in a store or something like that, I always think I don't, we don't sound like anybody else. And I don't know how yeah. to manage that, but we, I guess it's because we're kind of quirky and idiosyncratic. What would you say, Mark? I, I actually think those lyrics are really good. And, you know, ironically, that song being part of the anthology that it's on, um, it's 21 years old, and yet, lyrically, it, it's completely um, current, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I want to get to that. One of my favorite Martha and Muffin songs is uh, Women Around the World at Work. Great song with a wonderfully feminist slant, which was written by Mark. The song also has kind of a reference to sex trafficking that I didn't realize until I heard it yesterday. And, you know, back in 1980, 81, the feminism of that song was kind of radical, but it was great that you kind of snuck it into the top 40 airwaves. And it's pretty heady stuff for a pop song. We had a habit of doing that. We had a habit of writing these catchy pop songs and then putting lyrics to them that ruffled, ruffled a lot of feathers. Like Black Stations, White Stations was uh, very popular in the dance charts, you know, in dance clubs. But it never translated to radio because it was criticizing radio, segregated um, radio stations, black and white. Black stations, white stations, break down the doors. Stand up and face the music, this is 1984. I'm going to play a clip of you guys from 1981. Both of you are talking about your third album, but also dealing with the success of Echo Beach, okay? Everybody, of course, has personal favorites. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the fact that one song became a big single doesn't elevate the importance of that song in our own eyes, only in that it has financial rewards and things like that. But uh, I think that bands can become victims of that. At some point, I believe that you have to stop and go, okay, that was, you know, three years ago. Now this is what we're doing. And your audience has to come with you on that. You know? I think there was a desire to do something different on this album too, a progression, you know, rather than staying in the same vein that we had been in on the f- maybe on the first two albums because the first two albums were most of those songs were uh, written all at the same time in the very early mm-hmm. stages of the band. So this is the first time we've come up, had to come up with completely new material and we co-produced the album. There you go. I'm the younger. <laughs> now we sound like little babies. <laughs> I want you to think about what happened to you guys in the subsequent 39, 40 years since you said that, right? Like just the, your lives and your careers and everything that's changed, everything that's come, everything that's gone. Well, I was, think, I was thinking about how um, it was a real uh, turning point. I had a choice to make it at that point because um, we had some success, it's true, big success. And I think the, it was become, becoming interesting enough creatively. And also Mark and I got together on a romantic basis around that time. So it carried me away into the, uh, the life, life I had, and which has been very full and rich, you know, in many ways, not just musically. So that was only a year or so after Echo Beach hit it big. Do you ever wish that the success you had with Echo Beach 
would have happened a little later in your career or are you happy with the way it worked out? Well, I, w- I would say, you know, um, we're grateful for the um, immense popularity of that song being the first s- real single and the magnitude of that success created challenges because we never started this band to be famous or to be entertainers like that that wasn't really in the whole thing we started it because we thought it was kind of a cool idea that might last a couple of years and within this sort of whole punk post-punk diy uh, ethos of art college you know it was just a fun thing to do and to have that kind of success right off the bat was a huge weight in a, in a sense, because first yeah. of all, it divided people. They went, oh, you know, they've never done anything uh, better than Echo Beach, or, or I've never heard anything they've done other than Be- Echo Beach. And right. in a sense, the song is more famous than the band. But I, I think that the, um, the whole band probably would have fallen apart um, if we hadn't had that first success, because... Band, bands don't last very long usually, and right. we had six people who were all all very diverse, and uh, we're we're going to going to going to go in different ways. I think at that point, so I think if the and the record company wouldn't have, wouldn't have given us more money to make more records. I mean, they were already cutting the budget by by the third album, anyways. So I don't right. think they would have even given us a, a second look if we hadn't had success with Echo Beach off the top. One of those songs that stands out, and I think is terribly underappreciated is Dance Park. I love everything about that song, the rhythm, the kind of the slashing guitar. Um, I love, Martha, your lead vocals. Mark, your background vocals. What can you tell me about that song? My memory of it is that it started with the bass line that I I came up with, actually. Oh. Yeah, and lyrically, I think I wrote all the lyrics, and it was just, I, I was trying to write another Echo Beach, to be truthful. I, I was at a point where we really needed another hit single to, to go to the next level. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think it had that potential. I mean, it did in your eyes. Yeah, for sure. But um, it just, uh, the band just really picked up on it, and, and Dan Lenoir really picked up on it. He, he was really into it. And, you know, the, the sound at the beginning that starts the song, that sort of the uh, mysterious sound of the city humming. Uh, was catchy. It was. I think it had a lot of catchy things in it. But my, my brother, I think, told told me we always did this thing where we'd had a certain part of the song that that wasn't radio friendly. <laughs> dance park, oh, dance park. It was more like alt pop than it was top forty. But but all of your songs have been that. All of your like you wouldn't be you guys if you were going to take away those edges of the songs that make it kind of interesting and maybe for some people and and i i mean this respectfully because i like this for some people it might be off-putting or or not off-putting but challenging i like the challenge of the music and that whole scene whether it was you know you guys are the spoons or just the whole new wave scene or whatever you want to call it post-punk um like it was just so good and it was so interesting and you know the cure did the same thing the cure would put out a song and you kind of go oh, that little part there is wild. It doesn't quite fit on the radio, which is probably why it's not on the radio, but that's what makes it great. And I appreciate it. I like the fact that you guys stuck to your guns and it may have cost you in a certain top 40 success way, but it creates quite a powerful body of work. It's very astute of you, I think. 
It's true, and but we are who we are, you know. Like as you know, I said earlier, our reasons for doing this are probably quite different from a lot of people's reasons for doing it, and we are who we are. And um, we were we were always at odds with radio, I think, and, but, <laughs> and the record company. Right. Sometimes I look back and I go, I don't know how we didn't get dumped earlier from record companies. <laughs> like honestly, what we got away with sometimes seemed. <laughs> incredible but it wasn't like we were trying to get away with anything our our naive belief was that if we do the best music we can you know out of our genuine desire to make music then the record companies will do it's their job to bring it out to the people and sometimes right. they did yeah and sometimes they didn't um martha i understand that your health issues specifically you living with parkinson's will prevent you from touring and playing live in the future but are you able to create music at home and will there be any new martha and the muffins albums in the future yes we're finding um ways around my my uh, disability i hate to even call it a disability because it's actually a new ability <laughs> right and um we're working on uh, i'm uh, working on several songs that are new songs we're hoping to have a, a new martha and the muffins uh, album with all new songs come out next year. Oh, that's excellent. Yeah, I think people will be surprised to hear my voice still ha having the characteristics that it always had, but but the, uh, new to new tones and landscapes and territory I'm, I'm entering. The other thing is just uh, to mention as well is that Martha's been boxing for five years under this program called Rocksteady. Um, boxing. Boxing and it's all about uh, it's a therapeutic approach to dealing with Parkinson's through boxing. I love it. Oh man, that sounds great. I've always wanted to punch things, but I'm just a little guy and I'm afraid they're going to punch back. We'll find a heavy <laughs> bag or something. Yeah, no, you can do that without any bad repercussions. <laughs> That's great. The new collection is called Marthology In and Outtakes, includes 12 rare singles, B sides, and unreleased tracks, including a 30th anniversary recording of Echo Beach. It's just fantastic. Thanks very much, Martha and Mark, for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you, Tom. We enjoyed this a lot. That's a brand new conversation with Martha and the Muffins. Up next, the grudge match continues between Tom and myself as we try to outwit each other. It's TJ versus the VJ next. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Tom Jokic. That's Christopher Ward. I'm TJ. He's the VJ. And it's time now for TJ versus the VJ. As we test each other's musical knowledge, go ahead, Christopher. In an effort to redeem myself from past disappointments and humiliations right. on the radio, yes. I'm going to give it my best shot, and I have a theme today. It's reissues. I'm going to start with oh. the Beach Boys' Feel Flows, which encapsulates the Sunflower and Surf's Up albums and is amazing. Lots of great writing on there, including by a latecomer to the band, Bruce Johnson, who was brought in to replace Brian Wilson when he was not up for touring. You know right. the song Disney Girls that he wrote? Well, he also is responsible for an easy listening classic that is equally beloved and mocked. Do you know what song that is? That's called I Write the Songs by Barry Manilow. <laughs> A Billboard number one and Grammy Song of the Year. Nicely done. But first, it was recorded wow. by... Oh, 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 there was a silence man. there, wasn't there? <laughs> 
Okay, 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 okay. Oh, 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 oh. Can you give me a? Can you give me a clue? Who's a duo? A male, female. Yep. Oh, well, not Sonny and Cher. No, not Sonny and Cher. It was the Captain and Tennille. I was going to say them, but I thought... No, you weren't. <laughs> but it was also a single for the first time by yet another artist. This one you won't know. This is really obscure. It was a single for David Cassidy. Oh, wow. Well, I mean, I guess I'd like to hear that, but I don't think I would. <laughs> no, you don't have to. It's okay. All right, this is part B of, of this uh, segment, and it's also focusing on that Beach Boys album, Surf's Up, which, by the way, if you've never heard that record... Please yeah. give it a listen. There's a song on there called When I Die, which is just, to me, one of the greatest songs ever written. Okay. Mike Love was in a writing mode, sort of, when he wrote a song called Student Demonstration Time, which was actually a rewrite of Lieber and Stoller's song, Riot in Cell Block Number 9. But this wasn't the first time the Beach Boys had rewritten a rock and roll classic. Brian did it with one of their early hits. What song was that, and what song did he borrow from, Tom? Was it Surfing USA that borrowed from Chuck Berry? Yes, and yes, and what Chuck Berry song? Is it School Days? Nope. I'm literally going through the trivia knowledge in my brain like a <laughs> freaking Rolodex, okay? And I know the answer to this, uh, and I'm losing my mind. I don't know. It's Sweet Little Sixteen. Really? Okay, because I love yeah. Sweet Little Sixteen. Okay, it sounds like you've got lots more to go there, Christopher. Let me jump in, okay? I'm going to ask you a few Please. right here. This one is a gimme. You only have to think about this. You'll have. I'm going to give you about five seconds to think about this answer. <laughs> Whose 1995 box set was called Clouds in My Coffee? Well, it's got to be Carly Simon, doesn't it? That's right. That's right. You did that in about three and a half seconds. Well done. Okay. <laughs> what progressive rock star is credited for discovering Kate Bush? And this surprised me. I, I think it was um, David Gilmore of Pink Floyd. That's right. That's right. Well done. Okay. What very strange film aired on the BBC on Boxing Day in 1967 and was widely panned by the critics and the public and was the first real misstep by the Beatles. Magical Mystery Tour. All right, these are too easy for you. Okay, um, Christopher, what was the first rock double album? Oh, boy, that's a good question. It wasn't the White mm -hmm. Album by the Beatles? No. I don't know. Well, you should. <laughs> but I don't. <laughs> the answer is Blonde on Blonde. Oh, yes, I should know. Yeah, the first rock double album, Blonde on Blonde by Bob Dylan. Oh, boy, I love that record. Okay. You got something for me? Yes, I do. One of the big reissues recently was the, the All Things Must Pass 50th Anniversary Edition. This is the George Harrison yeah. uh, debut solo recording. The lead single, of course, My Sweet Lord. The story has been told many times about the lawsuit that emerged from the creation of that song and the fact that it was too close to a song called He's So Fine by the Chiffons. Now, we all know that George resolved that issue very elegantly by buying the copyright. But he says that he was trying to write another song. What was that other song and who was it by? Oh, wow. I have no idea. No. Oh, Happy Day by the Edwin Hawkins Singers. Oh, that is a great song. And that fits. Boy, oh boy, that fits. It never occurred to me that those songs have, you know, a spiritual connection, obviously. But yeah. they, it works. Very cool. Oh, yeah. One other one on, on, on My Sweet Lord. He was all set to let somebody else record it. Billy Preston. 
Oh, wow. Billy Preston would have been awesome on that. Okay, Christopher. As we know, Cher is the oldest woman to have a number one hit in the rock and roll era. Uh, she was 53 when Believe topped the charts, okay? The previous record was held by what woman when two songs by the band she was in went to number one in 1985 and 1986? She was 46 and 47 at the time. Grace Slick? Yes. <laughs> Starship. That's right. And one of the songs was Nothing's Gonna Stop Us Now. <laughs> And the other song we don't need to talk about. <laughs> the, the song that shall not be spoken of. This is the one. That's right. I won't, I won't say it. We built this city on rockin'. Oh, please stop. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I've got one more for you here, Christopher. All right, hit me. Bobby V, he was a really popular singer in the early 60s uh, who had a number of hits. He had a piano player in the early days, and he was a guy who called himself Elston Gunn. But Mr. Gunn quit Bobby V's band and moved to New York and changed his name to what? Bob Dylan. Yes, that's right. Was that too easy? That's kind of easy yeah. for you, isn't well, it? Well, for a for okay. a Dylan fan, that's one of those things. It's oh, etched you knew in stone. Elston Gunn? No, no, just the, I knew that he played with Bobby V. Right. I see. I see. Yeah, it's yeah. like kind of like me. If you were to give me like one of Prince's pseudonyms, like Christopher, Christopher Tracy, Jamie Starr. All those, like he, he went under so many different names and I knew them all, so you wouldn't be able to fool me on that. Because <laughs> Prince is my Dylan, okay? So there you go. Ooh. <laughs> Tom, I just received this past week my 8LP vinyl collection of Laura Nero's early albums. Oh, you are a big fan. She's a true original American songwriter, beautiful singer known best for the covers of her songs like Stone Soul Picnic and Wedding Bell Blues made into hits by The Fifth Dimension. Three Dog Night did her song Eli's Coming. But it's her very first song written when she was 17 that we are going to focus on. It was a number one song for a band, I'm going to give you a hint, with a Canadian singer. What's the band and what's the song, Tom? Okay, I think I've got this. Big band with a Canadian lead singer, so that would be Blood, Sweat, and Tears. And is it When I Die? It is indeed. <laughs> Did you just ring a bell? <laughs> no, but I will. <laughs> it sounded like you hit a coffee mug to, to denote a correct answer. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I kind of, I let me see if I can come up with something here. Okay. How's that? Is that good? That's perfect. Very By the good. way, uh, just a little bonus question. Do you know who first recorded the song? Uh, no, I don't. Eh. Peter, Paul, and Mary. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Now, also, um, Laura had a, had a big hit with a, with a song called Stony End. Do you know who recorded that? That's Barbara Streisand. Yeah. I've been determined to get back for some of my crushing, humiliating defeats in TJ versus the VJ, and I feel like I'm a little okay. bit of the way towards that in this, this episode. Sure. Um, yeah. This summer saw the release of Joni Mitchell's first four albums, newly remastered on the 50th anniversary of the original release of Blue. This album is considered by many the greatest singer-songwriter album of all time. It's number three on the Rolling Stone Top 500 albums. Can I read you a quote from Brandi Carlile? Listen to what she says about Joni Mitchell. Sure. Yes. In my opinion, Blue is the greatest album ever made. Blue didn't make me a better songwriter. Blue made me a better woman. No matter what we are dealing with in these times, we can rejoice and know that of all the ages we could have lived through, we lived in the time of Joni Mitchell. Wow. 
That is striking. I know. During the writing, by the way, of this album, she ended one relationship and started another. Can you name the Paramours? Well, I'm going to guess James Taylor and Leonard Cohen. One out of two ain't bad. Okay, so Leonard is obviously one of them. Graham, oh, man, it's Graham Nash, of course. <laughs> she ended her relationship with Graham Nash yes. by telegram. Do you know what the telegram said? <laughs> oh, <laughs> said, no. What? It said, if you squeeze sand in your hand, it will run through your fingers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Wow. And um, somebody that Graham knew well played bass and guitar on Carrie. Would it be Steve Stills? Yeah. Oh, oh. and I forgot to mention, the, the other rhythm guitarist on Carrie, as well as on three other songs, is... Uh, James Taylor. Yes. And he <laughs> is the Paramore number two. Okay. Leonard Cohen is not the Paramore number two, even though he is mentioned in one of the songs. Is that right? That's correct. Whew, I hope you're keeping track of all of that. That's TJ versus the VJ on Famous Lost Words as we wrap up yet another show. Now, if you want to catch up on past episodes of our show, subscribe on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to podcasts. The executive producer of Famous Lost Words is Sarah Cummings. I'm Christopher Ward with Tom Jokic. Talk to you next time. 